C.S. Lewis is considered by many Christians, both Catholic and Protestant, to be one of the greatest spiritual writers of the 20th century. But how much merit does that opinion truly have? Join us today as we talk about the mere Christianity of C.S. Lewis with our special guest, Dr. Regis Martin, Professor of Theology at Franciscan University. I'm Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Welcome to Franciscan University Presents. I'm your host, Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. And today we'll be talking about C.S. Lewis. I'm joined by a special guest panelist, Dr. Logan Gage, uh, Professor of Philosophy here at Franciscan University. And our regular panelist, uh, Dr. Scott Hahn, uh, who holds the Father Michael Scanlon Chair in uh, Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization, again here in Steubenville. And our very special guest, uh, Dr. Regis Martin, uh, known by EWTN as a regular panelist here on this show um, and, and publications uh, worldwide. Uh, you received your doctorate, doctorate in uh, Sacred Theology from the Angelicum in, in Rome. Uh, you've been a professor of dogmatic and systematic theology here at the university since 1988. Um, you're the author of numerous articles and books, including Still Point, uh, which is, I think, a lot to do with C.S. Lewis, The Beggar's uh, Banquet, What is the Church, and The Last Things. Uh, you and your wife, Roseanne, have ten children and reside in the local community here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It is great to have you on the show. You've been reading up about I have. I have. <laughs> Just making sure I got it all right I've here. been here so long, I should be dead. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're talking, uh, Regis, we're talking about uh, C.S. Lewis. And Who is that? <laughs> exactly. And that's what we're here to talk about. Yes. <laughs> we're hoping you could fill us in on this. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm among some pretty learned collaborators. Yes, uh, yes. I think we'll do fine. Yes, yeah. yes. Well, what's considered among his uh, kind of a Christian classic is mere yeah. Christianity. Yeah. Uh, both Catholics and Protestants really see this as a, as a classic work. And, and why do you think that is? Well, I mean, all of the themes uh, are, are given, I, I think, uh, definitive, authoritative expression mm. in this book, plus the timing of it. Uh, his first uh, really theologically serious work was The Problem of Pain, which came out in the early 1940s against the backdrop of this terrible uh, Second World War. And then he was approached by the BBC, uh, inviting him to sort of compress everything he knew about Christianity into a series of 15-minute broadcasts, mm. five of them. Uh, and that was a tall order, but he pulled it off uh, brilliantly. And the title, Mere Christianity, I, I think traces back to a phrase used by some damn 17th century Protestant Puritan <laughs> theologian by the name of Richard Baxter, who said, mere Christianity is pure, unvarnished, uh, uninterrupted Christianity, which somehow escapes all sectarian bias, hmm. by which I think he meant Rome. Hmm. That became the bugaboo, but we can get to that later. But what Lewis does, I think, in this showcase defense of the faith is to lay out all of those articles which I think are distinctively Christian and which every Christian commonly shares. 
So he's got a basis, I, I think, for a real conversation. I mean, that's a pretty audacious goal. To, it is. To really yeah. sum up the, the essentials right, of the Christian right. faith. And, but it was, it was instantly, uh, it instantly captured uh, the imagination of, of everyone. There's, there's one story of, of uh, an RAF uh, officer's uh, 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 canteen uh, where suddenly over the radio they hear this booming voice and there's a barman who's lifting his drink to give it to a customer and he holds it aloft for about 15 minutes because everybody is reduced to silence listening to this man. They are just so riveted by his conversation. You know, it's interesting that, um, by the way, Richard Baxter was a very notable Puritan theologian, but he was himself somewhat sectarian. He had developed the neonomian view. And so his attempt was to kind of get a lowest common denominator approach to get himself out of trouble. But you know, there was one group of people who were not endeared to C.S. Lewis, and that was his colleagues up in Oxford. Mm. You know, he really paid a price for expressing his faith as a Christian, as a convert, but also in popularization, you know. Yeah, they resented that, I think. It's our old friend Envy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He made a big splash. He became internationally famous. Uh, overnight. Which was not a good thing. No, huh? no. And I don't think it ever went to his head. I think yeah. he was a good man. I wouldn't call him a saint, but he was a thoroughly decent human being. I think the Oxford colleagues helped it not go to his head. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 So, so in, in setting out uh, for this very monumental task of, of summing up Christianity uh, in its essential elements at least, um, and obviously it, it's not necessarily mere, uh, as, as you pointed right, out, right. Uh, but uh, you know, what, what, what are some omissions, or are there well, omissions? Maybe we before we get to the uh, omissions, let's look yeah, at what yeah. really uh, commends it. Mm -hmm. uh, remember, this is the Second World War, and, and the dark uh, menace of Adolf Hitler very much uh, shadows over everything. You know, the bombers are dropping their, 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 their terror every mm. night on London. And, and so the, the whole nation is under siege. And Lewis uh, zeroes in on that. That becomes the great metaphor to control the organization of, of mm. the book. That somehow the hidden king uh, has appeared in disguise uh, in this enemy-occupied territory. Yes. And, and he's here to tell us that, you know, the whole foundation of clear thinking about the universe and ourselves who live in it is the fact that there's a law, a moral law, a structure of good and evil, mm. of objective, and we break it. We observe it mostly in the breach and yeah, it awakens yeah. a sense of guilt. So Lewis begins with that, the moral defects of the human race, and then he reaches for the remedy, mm. Christ. So he made a perfect cultural context uh, he did, in the yeah. historical yeah. time in, in yeah. our life. Yeah, somebody described Lewis as having written so well that he made righteousness readable. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, you have that talent. <laughs> well, you know, I had Lewis. I mean, that when I first experienced the grace of conversion around the age of 13 or 14, you know, I was a delinquent on the one hand, but I was a, a devotee of the Second World War. So when I came back from a retreat over the weekend, I picked up two books, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship and Mere Christianity. And I can't remember which one I read first. Uh, both of them were bracing and challenging, but it was the mere Christianity that just illuminated my mind. I mean, I just couldn't believe the clarity, the mm. depth, the beauty of the mm. truth and his prose. It just drew me in and uh, it took the grace of conversion that was just a weekend experience and really caused, caused it to flourish. Mm. Yeah. He was a gorgeous stylist. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Astonishingly Well, lucid. and for me as... And 
Logan, you yeah. have reasons. Well, to for like me, as a, I, <laughs> as a philosopher, I mean, I, that, that first part of mere Christianity, you know, there, there are different ways to judge the success of an argument, right? And, and one of them has to do just with how persuasive it is in the context in which you're offering it. And it's such a persuasive thing for us. I mean, we, we, we of course, in the Catholic faith, we have a long tradition of arguments for God's existence and for thinking that there's a God. Um, not all of them are, 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 uh, are things that reach the average man, though, right? I mean, when you start talking about, you know, uh, deep metaphysics that no one's thought of, it's sometimes hard to bridge that, that gap if people don't have the background for it. But the, the thing about the moral argument that Lewis offers is is that it starts with something we all experience in yeah, conscience, right. and, so, and and tries says what tries to say what's the best account of of this feeling and and this this sense uh, that we've trespassed something or more particularly someone, yeah. uh, and, and he asks us to consider what are the possible options for explaining this? Can it really be explained away? And if you tune into that 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 sense you have in conscience, it's 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 especially it seems like you've you've violated a relationship, a, uh, that you've trespassed a law or a lawgiver that you've 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 harmed or a yeah. good, namely a person. Yeah, and you're if in you, a state if you're of tuned to that. Yeah. yeah, and it starts where people are, and so I think it offers a very very powerful thing. And also, when you think about the evils of the Second World War, it's a it's a powerful starting point because it's just so hard to deny. And Lewis mentions this other where the other uh, in other places that's so hard to deny in wartime right. that there's good and that. Oh no! You know everyone's a relativist, a relativist until someone's bombing their city, right? <laughs> and you say, no, there's something wrong. This is right, an evil, right. and you yep. can't deny it. And from there, we work out what's the best account of conscience and of good and evil and the moral structure of the universe. And it's probably because there's a moral lawgiver. And what he was doing with the moral argument was distinctive because there were others in England, like Casserly, who did graceful reason, and uh, and Maskell too, Eric Maskell, who was doing work with existence and analogy and from a Thomistic perspective. And so to kind of take what was associated with Immanuel Kant yeah. and not just rehabilitate it, yeah. but make it so appealing that you read it and you want to believe it. I mean, yeah. usually you're reading an argument for God's existence from a, a, you know, a kind of, okay, persuade me. But I think five or ten pages into it, it's like, I want him to be right because this just strikes a chord. Yeah. Well, he had such a winning style and it was so conversational, direct, uh, and uh, easy, really lucid, wonderfully clear mm -hmm. and compelling. Mm. I mean, the, the content, I, I think, is, uh, is extraordinarily, unassailably true, yeah. uh, convicting, but the way he was able to frame it, I, I think, was so fetching. Yeah, it's fraternal, it's not professorial. Yeah. No. It really comes alongside and right. yeah, draws you in. Yeah. Yeah. So, so back to that comment then, we, we, we know, at least I, I do and probably many of our, our audience does as well, just the power of Lewis's writing. Some want to baptize him uh, and bring him into the Church of Rome. Right. right. Um, but, you know, were there f errors of omission, if you will? <laughs> well, we can't speculate about where Lewis is now. Right. I, I hope he's in heaven I and would. he's now fully Catholic. Right. Right. But there are omissions, there are gaps, which I, I think uh, are gaping. Yeah. Uh, and unfortunate, he leaves out the Blessed Mother, uh, yeah. the Petrine office, and the Eucharist. Right. Those are glaring yes. omissions, which I think weaken, but do not entirely vitiate uh, the argument. There's still something good that survives, but what's missing, I think, is to be lamented. It, it's easily accounted for, I, right. I think. Uh, he was a deeply uh, prejudiced guy yeah. against all things Roman, in fact, against all things foreign. There was something xenophobic about him. Hmm. I, I remember one particular anecdote. He couldn't have been more than nine years of age, and he announces to his family, you know, I'm really prejudiced against 
the French. Right. And his father says, what the hell does that mean? Why? <laughs> and he said, well, if I knew why, it wouldn't be a prejudice. <laughs> and he was an amazingly <laughs> precocious guy. <laughs> this is a nine-year-old. But this wasn't in England, was it? Wasn't this in Ulster? Th this was in Ulster. And, and I mean, oh, the first... Irish I, I, I know there was a big yeah. Irish... Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Irish. Culture, right. yes. So, I mean, a, a double sense of insularity. Yeah. The yes. fact that he was English and Irish, That's that right. combination was lethal. And, and, and because I, I just know, as an Irishman, just some of his kind of anti-Catholic bent from his experiences yeah. in Northern Ireland. Yeah, so bashing Catholics, I, I think, would be sort of, uh, you know, uh, an ingrained instinct, which I think over time he managed to somewhat control, discipline, but it yeah. doesn't altogether escape. No, but it is surprising how little anti-Catholicism really emerges. I mean, yeah. there's a residual element, but even when he's trying to kind of show how reasonable purgatory is, yeah. he distances himself from what he calls the Romish doctrine, right. you know? Yeah. But he ends up very, very close to the Romish doctrine. Probably too. more than some today would fully appreciate. I would, I would agree. Yeah. 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 It is, of course, a rather ecumenical book in many ways. And, yes. and in, in, the, in the very beginning, he tries to, to lay out what his vision, and he says, the reason I'm offering this mere Christianity is not because particular other doctrines aren't important, but, but then he gives us this, this uh, I mean, you know, which is fair enough given his goals, what he's trying to do, but, but he gives us this vision of this great hall with many rooms. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I appreciate what he's trying to do. He's trying to focus on what we have in common, on what's most important, to bring people to Christ f first and foremost, and that's important. But, but it suggests uh, a certain limitation in his analogy that, that we all find ourselves in this hall with many rooms. It's this great Christian house, you know, and, and he acts, the, but the limitation is this, is that, well, Methodism is behind one door, and, right. and yeah. you know, and, and, and you get the impression that, that Catholicism is just another door, right. rather than being the house or, right. or something like that. Sure. And so yeah. just the analogy and the vision right. and the imagery right. he's giving has its own limitations. He, he tends to relegate uh, Catholicism and what is distinctively Catholic to a kind of side chapel. Yes. This but is it had to be a very large house. It had to be a very large room. Right? I mean, there's many of us. You know? <laughs> no, but you also notice that it doesn't even rise to the level of the Anglican theory known as the branch theory. It really is a kind of lower church right, Protestant right, view right. that he would have picked up, I suppose, in Northern Ireland, oh, but not sure. from the Anglican. Yeah, so. You know, somebody said that when T.S. Eliot became an English uh, citizen, he sort of exhausted his capacity for conversion. And that really mm. applies uh, to, to Lewis. Unlike Eliot, who was genuinely cosmopolitan, I don't think Lewis liked anything that was foreign. Yeah. In fact, even the English uh, gave him pause. But his first introduction to England was a pretty terrifying one. He was sent uh, over the water uh, to a boarding school uh, that was run by a lunatic, hmm. uh, also a sadist, where his older brother Warney had been a student. So his first introduction is pretty traumatizing. Yeah, yeah. So we, we've got a, a great foundation for Christianity, but there are flaws uh, as we right, look at it. Yeah. But, it but it's still a, a, a seminal it's work, a, a real Christian uh, right. classic. Um, you know, there, there are so much more to go into with the wo works of, of Lewis. Let's uh, pick it up on the other side. Um, stay with us on Franciscan University Presents as we look a little deeper at C.S. Lewis. There have been men before who got so interested in proving the existence of God that they came to care nothing for God himself as if the good Lord had nothing to do but to exist. There have been some who were so preoccupied with spreading Christianity that they never gave a thought to Christ. C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce. 
I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. C.S. Lewis is Theology Poetry. People recognize Franciscan University as being academically excellent and passionately Catholic. We have the unique opportunity through our faculty members, through our students, to proclaim that academic excellence by reaching out in many different ways. We also remain passionately Catholic in the way in which we are able to worship, the way in which we are able to bring that love of Christ to others on a daily basis. It's important for us to be able to embrace both. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've been talking about C.S. Lewis, uh, Dr. Regis Martin, both professor here and author on, on your own right in many, many ways. Um, in, um, in another classic work of uh, C.S. Lewis's, The Great Divorce, he describes the, uh, the, the journey of the soul right, from right, purgatory yeah. to heaven. Yeah. Um, I think that's worth, worth starting off there. On oh, the it is. Work. It's a wonderfully uh, winsome work. I, I think it's quite lovely. It's one of my favorites, and it's so easy to read. It grips you immediately. Mm. I mean, the imaginative uh, 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 skill that he has, I, I think, is... Can you describe some of that? Yeah, yeah, well, you picture a, a scene in hell although it doesn't have to be hell, where a bus pulls up every Saturday morning, inviting day trippers uh, to take a journey to heaven, the outskirts of heaven, you know, maybe a distant suburb or two. And if they like the place, if, if they can handle the climate, they're welcome to stay. And then they move more deeply into the heart of heaven. And invariably, everybody that goes up goes back. They can't bear the place. It's too beautiful. It's too bright. It's too <laughs> solid. Yeah. I think in, 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 that, uh, in the exchanges that take place between the spirits uh, and these ghosts uh, that come up for the day, only one seems to turn out well, and this is the guy who's in the grip of a lust. And it's really a riveting uh, 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 scene. He's got this monkey or this lizard, rat, a lizard, lizard on, yeah. his, on his shoulder, and the angel wants to grab it and, and kill it because then it will grow up into a huge stallion that this young man, now transformed, can ride off into the sunset. But he struggles mightily, uh, and this lizard keeps, keeps whispering insidiously into his ear, saying, I won't be quite so, uh, so bothersome, but let's get out of here. And finally, he cries out, take it, damn it, take it. And, and the angel does. Because the angel won't do it against his will. He needs right. his yeah. consent. Yeah, exactly. yeah. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. And then it transforms, this, this masculinity transforms into this beautiful image of the stallion rather than oh, this, yeah. this petty lizard. And he becomes a mighty right. warrior who right. mounts it. Right. Yeah. It's and really thrilling. On yeah. Brilliant. And yeah. we can all identify with that. Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah he, he makes heaven so much more real. Right. You know, the blades of grass pierce the feet, you know. Right. Yeah. Uh, it deplatonizes that whole <laughs> realm of the spirit in yeah. a convincing way. Yeah. It really does. And there he encounters uh, his old mentor, George MacDonald, yeah. who, who mm. sort of instructs him uh, in the ways of uh, the next world. I mean, MacDonald uh, figured uh, with some uh, prominence in, in Lewis's conversion, his formation. Mm. He says it was MacDonald who baptized my sensibility. Mm -hmm. bathed it in something truly Christian. Mm -hmm. yeah. So when you, when you see Lewis describing purgatory, 
you know, which I, I again, as a, um, a Catholic today, find very funny that you have a Protestant tur talking about purgatory. Right, right. You know, what is profound about his description of? of well, you know, I think in a way he shares Pope Benedict's view. Uh, Benedict says, "Look, if we if it didn't exist, we'd have to invent it, <laughs> because God is merciful. Uh, you, he somehow wants to extend mm. into eternity something of time mm. to give us an opportunity to work out." of our salvation in fear and trembling, that refining fire. Mm -hmm. So Lewis sort of invents this place. I mean, it can be purgatory, these outer uh, rims of paradise proper, where you work out your salvation. And it, it's work, it's, it's a struggle. Yeah, that is powerful, yeah. that is powerful. Um, so just thinking of the, the lizard or the, the lizard on your back, yeah. I, first thought I had, you know, thinking about that is also the screw tape letters, yeah. you know, and here's this, this great, great conversation. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe you could describe a little of the screw tape yeah, letters. Yeah, I'm, I'm not so crazy about them, oh, right. but I, I acknowledge their <laughs> status, they're wonderful. That might have been the first uh, mm -hmm. uh, home run he hit, uh, and that caught the imagination of so many. I mean, what, what an ingenious idea to have this old tempter who is wise in the ways of wickedness yeah. coaching this young guy yeah. who in the end fails miserably right, right. because isn't, isn't, isn't there a bomb blast yeah. that somehow rescues this pilgrim soul from, uh, uh, from uh, hellfire? Yeah. Right. It's screw tape that he's most famous for, though. It is. Yeah, yeah I know. Yeah. Because it, it's so simple, and I think it, yeah. it, it's, it's got this great uh, well, maybe, story Well, maybe, you know, for the same reason that people who admire Dante uh, read only the Inferno, mm. uh, because it, mm. you know, the hellish details are a little more fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> but there's also the way that, uh, the thing I think that, that is genius about the work is the way that, that through the vices, sometimes we learn a lot about the virtues. Through, the, through our temptations, right. we learn sort of how to overcome them, how to be more aware of them. And that's what, that seems to me what's brilliant about it. Or think of the, think of the way he describes gluttony, and most people think of gluttony as this, as this overeating. But he, he picks out a, a woman who, who's really finicky and always has to bother other people to have it exact. No one knows how to cook a proper egg or something like that, <laughs> right? You know, and, and just that, 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 that over, that sense of, of even refined taste. And so calling our attention to ways in which the vices may maybe apply more to us rather than to the stereotypical person in the grip of vice. It's something that gets people thinking about their own lives the way that they're tempted, which I, I really appreciate. Yeah, and I, I just looked at the, you know, the, 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 three, uh, the three assaults on man, the world of flesh and the devil, and just how that all kind of comes together and how they're, they're used in that. Yeah. Um, you know what, what all of that suggests, uh, your line of inquiry? Lewis tended to be pretty tough on women. I don't think he really liked them. There was a certain misogyny that runs through his life. The members of the Inklings were all men. And he had a strange relationship with this crazy woman. Uh, he lived right. with the mother of a dear friend who died in the Great War. That was odd. There are, and, and the fact that he couldn't warm to the Blessed Mother, I, I think mm. that particular failing may have some root mm. uh, in uh, an earlier period. Mm. Yeah. So another another work is the abolition of man. Oh yeah. And yeah. And, and there's that that one one quote of the the men without chess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's so much probably in the abolition, but particularly that. What what is he referring to? Uh, the well, without, without the chess? virtue of magnanimity, which is the aspiration to be great, which is something we share even with the pagan world. This longing for greatness, mm. glory, uh, majesty. And men without chests uh, are hollowed out creatures. Mm. You know, they lack, uh, they lack the moral order, the structure of the universe. And, and Lewis is at great pains to try and uh, inculcate that. There's one episode which, which I've, I've oftentimes remarked on uh, in my classes 
which figures the poet Coleridge, who's standing uh, at this waterfall, this cataract, and he overhears a couple of tourists uh, describing it, and one says, this is really sublime. But the other guy dismisses it and says, oh no, it's just pretty <laughs> And Coleridge denounces <laughs> the fellow who dismisses it as merely pretty because he's sentimentalizing it. Right. It is sublime. It awakens a, a feeling, a sense of humility mm. in the presence of something glorious. Mm. Not to see that is to be sort of aesthetically defective, to be a barbarian. Mm. And, and to have a wrong view of emotion, right? Where emotion is just mere sentimentality, emotion is mere feeling, right. rather than, than uh, having a, what we might call a thicker, philosophers call it a thicker view of emotions, right? right? right. Where emotions put us in contact with reality. Yeah. You see someone being mugged, and you get angry, you feel it, you know, in your, deep down. And, and it's not just a random feeling you have, right. it's because of a perceived injustice. Yeah. Right. And so he has this line where he says, you know, basically we've, we've, uh, we've castrated them and then we want them to be fruitful, right? right. And so we, right. what we're Rid doing the geldings is, to be fruitful. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And everyone's like, what's a gilding? But, uh, but, 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 but we've, we've, we've castrated them in this sense that we want them to be good people, want them to be good English citizens and whatnot. But we're telling children that their emotional life is, doesn't have any purchase on reality, no contact with reality. It's just a mere feeling you have right. and of course in, in in the classical tradition the emotions are, are really important to the moral life they're not just ancillary they're not random you know they're not random feelings they connect us uh, to reality so we want people to that's what we do with children right we want them to feel the right way about good things and feel bad about doing bad things and they learn that even before they learn theoretically why is hurting right. someone else bad right. you know and, and you, you feel it first and that can, that stays with you your whole life because you, you usually do what feels good most right. of the time it's very Aristotelian it is, it is. Yeah. I think it you is. train it is. that little tyke exactly. to feel what is appropriate exactly. to that circumstance. There's a passage in Lewis where he takes on those people he describes as frivolous, mm. who, who are never really tempted to righteous indignation. And he says, you know, what Hitler did was really monstrous. And not to feel a sense of rage, righteous indignation, testifies to a kind of terrifying insensibility, mm. which is hardly human. Right? Mm. And do you see that at work in our culture today? Oh, I certainly do. I mean, not to be enraged by what ISIS is doing yeah. and to try to negotiate the difference, sit down with these people instead of bombing them. But at the same hell. time, you know, not being able to say radical Islam. Right, you know? yeah. And, right. But, you know, to say the GOP is, you know, and it's not a, a, an apologetic for the Republicans. I just recognize now that there really is more than a reluctance. There's an absolute refusal to acknowledge pure evil. Right. right. Evil right. exists and it and and to express defeated. indignation. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. all politicized. You can't it's defeat it until you acknowledge it. There it is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's got to be faced. It is the dragon to be slain. Uh, right. And it's not an individual. It's, it's it, yeah, The 800-pound gorilla is right in the middle of uh, the living room, and nobody wants to look at it. Yeah, yeah and you can, the same is true, obviously, of abortion and so much else. That yeah. People not willing to acknowledge the truth of the evils. Yeah. I wonder what Lewis would have done with the abortion uh, crisis. I mean, he died in 1963. This was before we had Roe v. Wade, but right. I imagine his outrage and horror. Certainly it would be genuine, but it would be externalized. He died the same day that Kennedy got assassinated. Yeah, so it went without hardly a notice. Yeah, I mean, that event co-opted everything else. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, there's so much that we can talk about with Lewis's works, but the, some of the more personal uh, books are Surprised by Joy and, yeah. and A Grief Observed. Yeah. Um, as you look at those works, what is it what does it share us about? Well, I mean, surprised by joy, the title itself, I, I think, carries the freight. 
Uh, he grew up in Northern Ireland, and from his nursery window, he could look off into the distance and see the green Castlereagh Hills. Mm. And that awakened a sense of longing and desire, mm. unquenchable desire for something unknown, mm. something distant, something seemingly unattainable. And then, in, in the autobiography, he is surprised by this joy, ambushed by wonder, the wonder of being. And that's life uh, mm. changing. I, that's mm. the game changer, I, I think. Yeah, yeah. This awakening sense of wonder. Yeah. And so as we, as we you know, we, we've, we've seen some of his classics, and this would probably be among them as well, are these, but, but they really reveal much more the heart of the man yeah, yeah. in this. And that's, that's, uh, yeah. it's, uh, it's very personal. And then of course, a grief observed uh, is profoundly, inescapably personal, mm. the death of the woman he loved. He finally loves a woman, mm -hmm. and then he loses her uh, mm -hmm. to cancer and is plunged into grief. He was not a stranger to grief. I mean, he lost his mother when he was a young boy, and his father, uh, who could have comforted him, was utterly ineffectual because I think around the time Lewis's mother died, uh, Lewis's father's father died and a favorite brother, and so he's sort of uh, withdrawn, and he's not much of a parent and Lewis is left with his brother, and the two of them form this great bond, mm. unbreakable bond. Mm. Mm. And then he goes to boarding school where he loses his faith. He goes to the Western Front where he, near, where he very nearly loses his life. Mm. Mm. I, mean, I think the first book he wrote was a collection of poems. Mm. It came out at the end of the war, Spirits in Bondage, mm. in which he describes God as this phantom good. He becomes, I mean, he's really a formal atheist. All the while, he's a medievalist. I mean, oh, yeah. he's a professor. Uh, right. He writes allegory of love. He does work that probably would have stood the test of time. I mean, if he hadn't been decried for his popularization. I mean, that's a side of him, too, that I think is admirable. Yeah, the world mm -hmm. of scholarship, unimpeachably uh, first class yeah. scholar. Mm -hmm. yeah. Brilliant. Mm -hmm. but, but, that, but that popularization that he yeah. often yeah. took on, yeah. both his colleagues in Oxford and others, uh, they respect that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they couldn't yeah. take his scholarship. But I don't think the one compromised the other. He was able to do both. Mm. brilliantly well. Mm. He he's, it was a, a rare bird yeah. of paradise. Yeah. Yeah. He left us with such great, uh, great legacy that we're still... Yeah, I think nobody remembers uh, The New Frontier or JFK, I mean, a thousand days of nonsense, but, but Lewis, I, I think, will never go out of print, out of style. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I, imagine your books still in print 50 years from now. I can't, and I won't see <laughs> them. I mean, we won't be in circulation, but if the books But survive, it's not just the fact that the books are in print. It's the fact that they're still having a huge impact, right. you know, yeah. not just for us. I remember back in the 70s when I was, you know, reading it in high school, Mere Christianity and then Screw Tape, and then in college, The Abolition of Man was a required text for the freshmen at right? Grove City and the awakening to the moral law and its objectivity. You know, and from there I, I went to the great divorce and realized heaven, you know, all of these things are so much more real than what we have. And now my teenage boys, you know, they, they picked up screw tape and abolition and you know, it's just like remarkable to see without even mentioning or recommending it, they found this material, you know. We did do Narnia when they, when they were little, you know. Right, but, uh, Actually, I want to pick up on, on Narnia oh, on the sure, other side. Sure. Uh, right. Stay with us. Uh, Franciscan University presents. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done and those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. 
all that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce. Good and evil both increase at compound interest, and that is why the little decisions you and I make every day are of such infinite importance. The smallest good act today is the capture of a strategic point from which you may be able to go on to victories you never dreamed of. An apparently trivial indulgence in lust or anger today is the loss of a bridgehead from which the enemy may launch an attack otherwise impossible. C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. This entire program springs forth from the very heart of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. Our students are operating the cameras and equipment, are, are uh, being recorded right now in our communication arts studio. Our panelists, our professors here at the university, um, and Regis, we've been continuing to, to plug through and, and understand a little bit more deeply who is C.S. Lewis. Yeah. And, and we ended last segment, uh, and now we're on the other side. Uh, right. it, let's talk about Narnia. Yeah, that's I mean, this wonderfully is, this is, evocative, that yeah. phrase, yeah. the other side, because that's what Lewis <laughs> wants to carry his reader to, yeah. the other side, the well yes. at the end of the world, yeah. uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah, so Narnia. we have the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right, and the yeah. whole series. Wonderful. I mean, they've even been adapted successfully, right. I think, uh, to the screen. Uh, yeah. There's a lot there. There's you know. Aslan, you know, <laughs> the, the invisible God uh, who comes uh, in disguise uh, into the world and, and atones uh, for the treachery of, uh, of other humans. You know, Chesterton has a great line about fairy tales. He says they're not really meant for children. They're meant for adults, yes. people for whom the life of the imagination has sort of run dry. It's, it's become a parched, eviscerate soil. And it needs to be uh, irrigated, nourished. And that's what Lewis does. Yes. Uh, uh, he awakens this sense of wonder and, and does it in a way that appeals so easily to young people right. who already have a sense of wonder, but, but he sharpens it and, and gives it a theological focus. It's really a work of apologetics, thinly yeah. disguised yeah, very thinly, as, yeah, as fiction, as fantasy. But it's a, a lovely story, a yeah. wonderful story. And to, to quote Chesterton again, he said something akin to, um, it's not the fact that children, uh, we don't tell children fairy tales about dragons yeah. uh, because children don't believe in dragons. They know they exist. It's yeah. a matter of the fairy tales so that they can be killed. You know, and right. as we, as we right. look yeah. at, at Narnia, yeah. you see this, this unfolding of yeah. both children coming to understand sure. uh, as well as Aslan reaching out. Yeah. He's not a tame lion, though. No, so. no, he, <laughs> no, he, he isn't. And it doesn't, it, it doesn't end ambiguously. I mean, it's not a modern or postmodern fiction. It, you see the triumph of good over evil. And it's a perennial struggle yeah. uh, to defeat uh, the forces of, of injustice and falsehood. And again, he, he's in the backdrop of the war, and so he has all of that context. Right. Uh, but I, I, as we had mentioned earlier, just his, his explanation or his description of what a heaven could look like or right. what that, you know, that, that there's some, so many powerful imagery, poetic imagery. Right. Uh, that yeah, really heaven is other people. It's company. Yeah. Uh, hell is being alone, yeah. you know, yeah. a kind of infernal solipsism. 
that goes on forever. Yeah. And he had some other um, uh, non-fiction works, you know, Till They Have Faces and, yeah. the, and the Space Trilogy. Well, that is fiction, Till They Have Faces. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah that, I'm not as fond of that. Uh, it's, it's difficult, it's dense. And, and Miracles uh, is another great work uh, of, of mm. Lewis. There are so many works. I like the problem of pain mm. uh, in particular. I think his treatment of it is really beautiful, particularly the section on animal pain, because I, I've grown up with animals, and I'd hate to think that they suffer, or that I won't find Fido with me if I get to heaven. Yeah. I mean, Lewis says, look, if you need him, he'll be there. Yeah. And, but <laughs> that they, is an age-old question. Though, you know, it really yeah. is, yeah. But the pain that, that animals uh, have to suffer, do they really feel that pain? And Lewis has really a novel explanation that lets them off the hook. They experience it as sensation, but because they're not self-conscious, they can't step outside the sensation to sort of organize it as a sequence of continuous pain. I, I don't know, it, it may be a little glib, but it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm. I'd like it to be true. If somebody had to read or hasn't read uh, Lewis before, would, would that, that be that a, might That's not a bad place to begin because everybody wrestles with the problem of pain. We're all Job. Yeah. We want to know why is there uh, evil? Uh, if God is all good, all powerful, why does he abide it? Why does he put up with it? He could end it, and if he loved us, he would want to do so. But there is evil, suffering. How do we reconcile that? That's a big question. There are, there are penetrating insights that yeah. you need to read before you suffer, before you go through pain. You know, he whispers, us, he whispers to us in our pleasures. He shouts to us in our pain. But he also makes yeah. a, a, a comment that, that when you're suffering, you can't theologize about it, you know? <laughs> and so you need to prepare for that. And mm. boy, he does a great job of preparing his readers for whatever comes, you know? Yeah, yeah it's not the sort of book you hand to a, a, a terminal cancer patient. Right. But before the diagnosis, it might be something worth mm. looking yeah. at. Yeah, it's a great foundation. Right. We all will but I, I like that. It, for some people, you have to shout. Mm. And pain is a way of shouting. God turns up the volume. Some people will not be reached yeah. in, other, in any other way. They have to learn wisdom through agony. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned the Space Trilogy, too. And, and, and that only continues a theme that's throughout Lewis's works, a, a, a skepticism towards uh, you know, uh, science is the only and best way of knowing yeah, what we often yeah. call scientism. That man is over nature. And, and this, dom this theme of science is dominance over nature. This is why he says that science is basically the, the magician's twin, right? He uses this image where, where it's really about them, you know, in the modern conception of science, that it's this mastery and dominance over nature, seemingly without reference to the communal good or, or the moral order. Yeah. It's just about mastery, doing what we can yeah. um, for, say, our pleasure or something like that, without any reference to any objective good, which is obviously a message we need to hear in our time, you know? Yeah. We, we we put commercials on TV, and as long as the person's wearing a white lab coat, we're convinced that must be the best toothpaste. That's right. That's you know, right. right. We, we see these people as sort of the, the high priests of our secular culture, and whatever they say is fine. And without, you know, and we, or you, you see people in, in complex questions, political questions, which involve prudential decisions, which involve, uh, you know, moral goods that are at stake and, and, and wrestling with them. And yet, who do we ask? The scientists who have some right. technical expertise right. in mixing chemicles, right. and we say, "Well, you should know." Yeah. But no, they might not have any training we in ethics, over philosophy, theology. He leads us to see how frightening that kind of right. thing becomes. Yeah. You know, I remember reading the space trilogy when I was in seminary, and uh, I was really struck by that hideous strength. I mean, that's one of the greatest books I ever read, mm. and I was reading it after Thanksgiving break 
right before final exams when I should not have been reading anything <laughs> but my notes and the assignments, you know, and I could not your put brain it down. It. <laughs> well, in some ways, it reinvigorated my mind at the end of a very hard semester. Yeah, I so I think it actually helped me, but I, that was yeah. an amazing book. You know, uh, um, I just remembered something that Eric Vogelin uh, had written. Uh, he, he was a great expert on Gnosticism, yeah. and he describes that as the peculiar ordeal of the modern world. Yeah. And the Gnostics were tempted mm. uh, to acquire this hidden knowledge and use it to lord over everyone else. Mm -hmm. And their tyranny, the tyranny of the experts, the learned ignoramuses, as Ortega describes them, is something that we genuinely need to fear. You know, knowledge harnessed mm -hmm. to a power. Uh, you know, making uh, politics the way the crow flies without any reference to the human condition. Mm -hmm. uh, that, I mean, rationalism, it, it's a great danger. And it's good to see it dethroned exactly. uh, in yeah. the Space Trilogy. Yeah. We need that. And yeah. isn't there Our one uh, volume where he travels to Venus and they haven't yet fallen? Right. It's a pre-lapsarian world. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, there, there's a lot there in both his fiction and nonfiction uh, works for us to unpack. Um, when you think of Lewis as a man, he, he's someone who often writes and talks about the value of friendship. Yeah. Um, what in his life really influenced him in that regard? Well, I think the loss of his mother uh, uh, made it necessary for him to find uh, uh, friendship and affection elsewhere, yeah. his brother, and then the Great War. He was a student at Oxford, and it turns out that at least 20% of the people he knew died in the Great War. So he's haunted by that sense of loss. It devastated uh, an entire generation. Every member of the Inklings, uh, that group that, that uh, coalesced around Lewis uh, in Oxford, they lost somebody. So that, that was the great disaster that, that befell the modern age. And I think it made the friendships he forged all the more precious. He was a great friend, a yeah. great companion. You know, the environment at Oxford, too, I mean, there's a kind of principle of secular celibacy yeah. that rules the dons, and so many of the professors and people who were living among the students, I mean, friendship among men was something that was paramount. Right, and right. what was the place, the eagle and the don? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, right. And child, yeah, the bird and baby, yeah. as they called it. Yes, yeah. right, right, right. Yeah. So let's talk a little about the Inklings. You know, yeah. so, so we got Tolkien as a member of the yeah. Inklings, right? Yeah, J.R.R. Tolkien, and also, the this uh, elusive figure, Charles Williams. Williams. He was the first to die. Uh, not even, uh, not even uh, uh, when the war was over uh, did he uh, fall away. Mm. And he was a, a mysterious man, but had a great influence uh, on Lewis. Mm. Also a, a great influence on young women uh, who worshipped him. He had all kinds of disciples, <laughs> acolytes, but his marriage remained intact. He was a very chaste uh, guy. In fact, he wrote beautifully about chastity, mm. marital chastity. He was sort of the theologian of romantic love. Mm. And he wrote these metaphysical thrillers, which, which I find really exciting. So Lewis, Tolkien, Williams, no women, Right. Although on the periphery, somebody like Dorothy Sayers uh, yeah. uh, was a pretty formidable uh, 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 presence. And they would gather, uh, you know, once or twice a week. They would, they would drink their beer uh, and have their roast beef sandwich. <laughs> and then they would start talking and they would share what they were writing. I mean, most of The Lord of the Rings uh, was read aloud by Tolkien uh, during these, uh, these gatherings. Yeah. Was there any impact on... on uh 
Lewis uh, or, or Tolkien back and forth knowing their, their uh, well, works I mean, yeah, Tolkien was pretty tough on, on Lewis. He didn't like his, uh, his imaginative works, and he didn't like his Protestantism, and he didn't mind saying so. <laughs> I mean, Tolkien was, was an amazing guy. If, I think he was a better writer in terms of fiction. The imaginative sure. reach was deeper and richer. I mean, he's going to last forever. But they were great friends, mm. and they were colleagues. Uh, they were comrades mm. in arms. Mm -hmm. They had the same vision about the medieval world. Right. And a beautiful dispute between them about, about the role of, of allegory versus just building an imaginative world. Right. Right. You know, just letting the truth shine forth through a great story. It will right. always point to Christ. You don't have to force it. You don't have right. to have right. an, a, you know, a lion that represents Jesus. Right. You, you don't have to force it that if you build it, and if, it's, and if, it, if, it's, if it speaks to us as human right. beings, then it will speak about Christ, you know, right, and it yeah, doesn't. You don't have to. It doesn't have to be a one-for-one one allegory, you know. Right, it's a little forced. Yeah, that's little what that. Way. I think yeah. was a lot of, of Tolkien's critique, right? Yeah, the Pilgrim's Regress, I, I think, is an example right. of heavy-handed allegory, which right. I think Tolkien uh, uh, would uh, despise. Did, did, but I think it's also it? because Tolkien was a Catholic, and so yes. his yes. world was sacramental. Right. Right. Whereas I think Lewis was. Uh, was not just a Protestant, but there was a sort of Puritan streak, and in Puritanism, there is a heavy-handed kind of preachy allegorism. That's right. right. And yeah. I, I think that spills over. He tends to moralize. Yeah, it, very I much think. so. Yeah. Did, did, did Tolkien have any influence on kind of softening some of uh, uh, Lewis's uh, kind of anti-Catholic bias? I, or, I or suspect prejudices? that he yeah. did. Yeah. He, <laughs> I mean, Lewis was not uh, uh, in. He, he wasn't uh, uh, insensate. So. Right. 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 He wasn't very publicly. Uh, no. He, 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 was, he grew, uh, he learned, he, he was always open. Mm. He, was, he was something of a bully, of course. Uh, some of his, his uh, pupils uh, really hated him, feared him, because he, I mean, his own education under the formidable Dr. Kirk uh, really trained him to be a logic chopper. Right. Uh, and you'd better be careful what words you used because he would pounce on you if they didn't signify the right things. So I think maybe Tolkien softened him up a little. Okay. Uh, I think the point you make about literature, it's embodied meaning, it's fleshed out, mm. it's incarnational. I think that may have had some influence. And, and when you think about his friendship, his beautiful yeah. friendship with his wife, yeah. Joy, yeah. Um, how, how did that influence his perspective? Well, that changed his life, yeah. Yeah, but it didn't last terribly long. Uh, he lost her uh, shortly thereafter. But I think it was the one great love of his life. Mm. I see a parallel with T.S. Eliot. Uh, his first wife was mad, uh, but late in his life, I mean, he's an elder statesman, he, he marries his secretary, who's about 40 years younger than, than he, and experiences genuine happiness, mm. and likewise Lewis. Yeah. Mm. By the way, they did not like each other. Well, maybe Eliot liked him, but Lewis really resented and, and feared, I think, was always suspicious of Eliot. I think Eliot's fame might have given Lewis some pause. And he didn't like modernism. He hated the wasteland uh, uh, and you know, the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. Eliot was just too uh, modern uh, for him. So the, la the last relationship is the, is the longest relationship he had with his brother. Uh, yeah. Or, yeah, which survived, I mean, his brother survives uh, his death. They were very close friends. And, and Warney uh, was a scholar in his own right. He wrote some beautiful things, uh, marvelous scholarly works about the French uh, uh, Renaissance. Uh, 
but he, he was an alcoholic. Uh, I, I think that sort of limited uh, his scope. But he was always there. And he was, uh, he was a sort of uh, tirelessly loyal uh, defender of his brother. Mm, excellent. Stay with us for the final segment of Franciscan University Presents. We do not want merely to see beauty. We want something else, which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. C.S. Lewis, Transposition and Other Addresses. For a Christian, there are, strictly speaking, no chances. A secret master of ceremonies has been at work. Christ, who said to the disciples, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, can truly say to every group of Christian friends, Ye have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. The friendship is the instrument by which God reveals to each of us the beauties of others. C.S. Lewis, The Four Loves. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've been talking about C.S. Lewis. Uh, we're at our final segment, so Logan, could you start us off? Yeah, a couple more thoughts on Lewis. Uh, the first one, we, we touched on it uh, at the very beginning, but, but the value of his apologetic writing, I mean, I often tell students, first of all, if you just want to be a good writer, you know, uh, someone that's persuasive in arguments that isn't overly wordy and flowery, read Lewis, read, mm. people, read people like that, because it's just short, it's to the point, perfect illustrations, not over the top, um, it's, just, it's just great writing. And, and if you ask almost any Christian philosopher today, you know, how did you get your start in philosophy? You know, I think they will say, I started by reading C.S. Lewis, and yeah. then I moved into Chesterton, and then I started reading more contemporary philosophers, and it's not a surprise to me that that happens. The second thing I'd say a little bit more personally is, is, is it's so, it sounds so funny perhaps for, for many of you uh, to hear this, but for me, reading Lewis was, was almost like reading the Church Fathers as a, as a very low church evangelical. It was somebody that was, even though we're only a few decades apart, was at such a, a distance culturally yeah. from my very low church evangelical American upbringing. And, and so, he, but he gave me a freedom because I immediately sensed he's one of us. He gets right. it. He's really, he, he understands the heart of the gospel. He, he's close to Christ. And, and, uh, and so for me, that freed me up when he would talk about purgatory, when he would talk about the more high church elements of his Anglicanism. I would say, oh, wow, so Christians can believe that sort of thing. That was new to me. And, it, you know, and it, it, it gave me a little bit more perspective, maybe on my own unique place in history. Uh, and the last thing I would say is, is this on Lewis. He's really an underrated philosopher. I, you know, because here's what happens with most of us Christian philosophers. We grow up reading Lewis, maybe in high school. Then we encounter more serious philosophers, and we start to downplay Lewis a little bit. But the truth is, he, you know, his, his first degree was in philosophy. Um, and, and as you mentioned earlier, Regis, he, he studied logic um, very heavily, was very influenced by his, his, uh, his mentor. Um, and, and, and the more I go back and read, for instance, I went back recently and reread The Moral Argument at the beginning of Mere Christianity. 
Just because it's put in plain language doesn't right. mean it's not right. a serious argument. And, yeah. and the thing I noticed this time now, 20 years later with, with much more training, he was very attentive in little things that he says to the philosophy of his, of his day. He knew the logical positivists. He knew yeah. A.J. Ayer. He knew these people. Right. And you can see in his writing that he's accounting for their objections along the way. Right. But it's stuff that as a high schooler I couldn't see, and so I thought it was a little bit more simplistic than it really is. But he is really an underrated philosopher. And, and he had real interactions on Oxford with Elizabeth Anscombe and other people. He was right. being challenged by those around right. him. I, but he doesn't get quite enough credit. Sometimes we think, be, again, there's this myth that if you write popularly, well, then you're not really right. a scholar. And that's really he just shows that that's not true. Yeah, that is so good. Thank you. Scott? You know, this show has been really helpful for me because, as I mentioned during the break, for over 40 years I've enjoyed Lewis, but I never really analyzed. I never pulled it all together. And I go back over 40 years to when I first read Mere Christianity and then Screw Tape. And, but I also reflect upon the fact that we have recycled the Narnia Chronicles at least four times in my family. <laughs> After dinner, we would read for up to yeah. an hour every night. And, you know, beginning with our oldest going down to our youngest, uh, they all heard this, you know, and they all loved this. And it opened up, even for my wife, who was still a Protestant at the time when she was reading it with us, it gave to her a sacramental imagination, you know. Yeah. And I can also see that, you know, for most of our kids, they kind of graduated from Lewis to Tolkien, you know, from Narnia yeah. to the trilogy. And they appreciate, you know, Narnia, but they see the allegorism and then they want more and they find it in Tolkien, but they find it elsewhere too. But just Two years ago, when my uh, youngest was coming uh, through some struggles, he picked up screw tape, and it helped him with his own emerging adolescent hormones in a really profound and practical way. You know, for uh, I think about a week and a half, he would just check in with me and say, and he would read to me a section. I'm like, wow, I could never get away with saying that, you know? Mm. So I would say for, for Catholic families especially, pick up C.S. Lewis, you know, individually read him, but also I think the greatest experience, one of the greatest experiences we've had in our family history is that after dinner reading, where hundreds of hours, you know, maybe thousands, and I think there was a transformation that happened in an almost imperceptible way. Mm, mm, thank you. Regis. Well, th this has been a really scintillating uh, uh, conversation, and I'm so grateful to uh, the three of you for uh, helping me out here. Uh, let me uh, end with a couple of anecdotes that really are not about Lewis, but I think cast a kind of indirect light uh, upon him. Uh, many years ago in Rome, there was a group of uh, Augustinian scholars who had come to the uh, Eternal City to study uh, the work of their great master. And they had a private audience with Pope Paul, mm. uh, who had more than a passing acquaintance with the thought of Augustine. And he turned to them and said, how do you begin to study the ocean? Now, Lewis is not uh, oceanic. He's not a titanic figure like Augustine, but he's not exactly a slouch either. And I don't think it's so uh, imprecise to speak of him as a kind of church father, loosely, analogically. He is uh, a source of great wisdom. And where do you begin? How do you study the ocean? I think just by dipping in anywhere. Yeah. The other anecdote involves uh, John Henry, Cardinal Newman. Mm. Uh, at the end of his life, and as you know, it was a very long, distinguished life, he spanned practically the entire 19th century. Uh, and so everything he wrote was snapped up by everyone. 
But it seems that there was this one fellow uh, who was a bit lazy, uh, and so he approached his eminence and said, you know, you wrote this thing called an essay on the development of Christian doctrine, and you know, I just didn't have time to read it. Could you please boil it down for me in, in a couple of sentences? What were you trying to say? And God bless him, Newman refused, and he said, Catholicism is a very deep matter. You can't take it up in a teacup. And I thought that was neatly put. But the thing about Lewis is he's able to take Christianity up in a teacup. He's able to distill what is distinctively Christian and to impart it in a lively and persuasive way. That, I think, uh, testifies to a certain genius. So I would urge people to read anything yeah. by Lewis. Everything is touched by, by gold, by magic. Uh, and see if it doesn't transform you. It will certainly delight you, uh, give pleasure, but it will also instruct and, and inspire. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Regis. Thank you for what you've shared here today. I do feel edified myself as well. This has been a great conversation. Uh, if you've enjoyed today's conversation on C.S. Lewis, we have a, a great handout for you, uh, an article that uh, Regis wrote, The World Beyond the Wardrobe. Uh, you can get it at faithandreason.com or just for asking. Um, to, uh, to tee off, as, as Regis said, it isn't a question of, of where you start, it's a matter of just starting. Uh, we really need to go in and um, reveal uh, to our children, to this generation, uh, the, the beauty and the wonder that we find in Lewis. I've, I've always been captivated as a child and shared that with our family, as, as Scott shared, uh, just reading the Chronicles of Narnia uh, and, and, and giving them tastes of what the beauty, uh, the, the wonder. Uh, we've lost that sense of beauty and wonder in our world, and we really need to recapture it, and Lewis is a great way to do it. Mere Christianity is an is a excellent, excellent instruction for the new evangelization and really getting us closer uh, to understanding how we share that in a very simplistic and, and uh, appropriate way, effective way with our friends. Um, as, as we here at Franciscan University believe, our mission is to go out and to educate, to evangelize, and send forth joyful disciples into all the world. And I want to invite you to be a part of that mission, uh, possibly by coming here to Steubenville, Ohio to take classes, or join us in our online program, or join us at one of our, our dynamic summer conferences, or on pilgrimages to holy shrines around the world, or go to faithandreason.com, a site where you can be equipped both in your head and your heart to go out for the new evangelization. Uh, and until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. To download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents, or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381. Or call 740-283-6357.